What's going on guys and girls, it's your boy Captain Smoke Man and welcome to the first episode of Higher Learning. So, some of you may have read my Reddit post, um, my father is a drug dealer who was killed next to me, ask me anything. Um, it's kind of a thing on Reddit as far as ask me anything, but uh, some of you may have read that and some of you may have not. Uh, but basically, um, about four months ago, I went on Reddit and uh, after reading quite a few of the Ask Me Anything uh, post, I was inspired to kind of share my story. So I did. And uh, to my surprise, almost like 2000 people like interacted with the post, upvoted it, commented on it, um, you know, sent a lot of love. And uh, there were some people with like some pretty good questions, too, which I'll get to. Uh, a little bit later but um i just wanted to start off uh by giving a couple like personal shout outs to some people who uh you know really said some kind words on the post so uh first shout out goes out to uh, regal too he says reading this statement among others has made me resolve to be more honest in therapy i'm only a month in i'm 37 and i've been struggling for years and i feel exactly as you described i don't want to be a burden Thank you for taking the pressure off. Thank you for so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being so honest. I swear to God, you just changed my life. Also, side note, I grew up in a drug dealing family, so I uh, feel this on another level. Um, so Regal, too, I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing those kind words and really, uh, you know, giving such an honest answer yourself, an honest response. And hopefully your therapy is going well, my man. Hopefully uh, things are looking up for you. And, um, you know, I would really like to get you on the podcast so we can have, you know, a deeper conversation about, you know, some of the things we went through and how we're dealing with it uh, throughout life. So hopefully you're listening to this, man. Uh, once again, I appreciate you. All right. So next uh, we have Kelly Kate. KTJ95 who says it seems really uh, crystal clear that you need to write a book and that book needs to be turned into a screenplay and that in the movie that comes from this will get Leonardo DiCaprio an Oscar your writing is excellent I felt everything was captivated from the first word through each and every one of your responses you are a warrior and you sound light <clears throat> light years ahead of your age you are in you are an incredibly and I cannot express this enough incredibly special person I truly wish you the very best life has to offer. You are worthy of really wonderful things. I urge you to start writing. Your story is so compelling. Start writing as soon as uh, as soon as you can and don't stop until you have a bunch of pages with text on them and find a publisher or get in contact with someone in film. Your story needs to be heard. Uh, Kelly, I really appreciate those kind words. Um, and you're actually you two got you two people are one of the reasons why I'm uh you know on this platform right now starting this platform and taking my message to you know a bigger stage and out of the subreddit and you know onto the world stage so um without further ado guys basically uh i want to provide a little bit of context um around the story because i understand uh you know reading it back for somebody reading it who doesn't know anything else about me other than what they're reading on the post, um, there's a lot of information that, uh, you know, you you wouldn't have any idea about. So, uh, you know, I want to provide a little backstory starting off with uh, just my whole like parent situation. And uh, I mentioned living in two different places like so let's just start from the beginning. So uh, my parents met in high school. Uh, 
in California, the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, my dad was in the streets or whatever. Um, and I think my grandma kind of knew or she was like pretty like she was suspecting that or suspicious of that. Um, and uh, basically, like that was pretty much confirmed uh, one day after like a dice game gone wrong. Right. And uh, apparently you know, the, this guy and my dad had words and that led to the guy following my dad home to, uh, you know, his mom's house, my grandma's house, not my mom's mom, but his mom's house. So, uh, you know, long story short, he ended up killing the guy and, uh, you know, it was real self-defense and everything, but that guy's family obviously took issue with everything. And, uh, you know, uh, word, even word of, you know, everything obviously got back to my mom's mom and she really wasn't having that. And so, uh, she ended up moving, uh, you know, down with her, with my mom, uh, back down South. But, uh, you know, nobody knew at the time my mom was already pregnant with me. So they found that out shortly after, you know, they got settled in here or whatever. Um, and so from there, like my dad came to visit me, you know, obviously when I was born and then ended up getting locked up for a couple years or like a like a little bit under two years, I think it was. And I was really, really young, but I still remember it because I, I remember this birthday card that somebody like hand drew for me and uh, I still have it somewhere. But uh, anyway, long story short, um, after that, after he got out, we would go visit him for like Christmas and stuff, you know, him and my other family. And uh and we kept doing that until I was about six, like five or six, uh, because that's when I was able to start flying by myself for the summer. So, uh, at, you know, every summer after, you know, every school year at the end of the school year after it let out, I would go straight to California. I'd hop straight on a plane and go to California and stay there as long as possible until, you know, a week or two before school. And that was pretty much, you know, the that was, you know, the highlight of the year, obviously. But that, you know, everything went like that for like six years. Uh, and so we're going to just fast forward to 2007, which is where everything actually happened. Um, so this year when I got there, the vibe like the vibe was off. Like uh, usually, it you know, there was like this vibe and nothing could, you know, stop the, the fun we were having. Nothing bad could happen. Uh, you know, it felt like uh, my dad was like invincible and thus I was, too. Not that I was, you know, but I just never felt like in danger or anything or I never felt like he was in danger until this particular summer. For whatever reason, I had like a very strong feeling that, uh, you know, he was in danger and um, to the point where I was like looking out for it, like expecting it, all, like, you know, literally. Um, but uh, yeah, so one day we were bowling, we were at the bowling alley and uh you know, having fun per usual. And, uh, you know, it had, it had gotten late, probably around nine, 10. So we, uh, you know, headed back to the house. And, uh, when we were walking, uh, you know, when we were walking, uh, to the door, you know, when he got to the door, there was like, you know, the first thing that was suspicious though, is like, there was a car parked, you know, running, facing towards the street at the end of the road. And I didn't notice it until he looked at it. So when he got out the car, before he started walking to the door, he turned around and looked like he had this like strange look on his face. Cause there was, you know, he looked towards the car. And so that's when I seen it, but I didn't see anything else. So, um, after that, we, you know, he turned around and, you know, walked to the door. So I'll try to paint a visual, um, because 
uh, you know, I'm doing some sort of hand gestures on screen here. But, uh, you know, for those of you that's listening on the DSP, such as Spotify, Apple Music, all of that, I'll try to give you a verbal representation. So we have a driveway, you know, we had a driveway and then there was like an L shaped sidewalk, right? So you walk out of the driveway and then, you know, it's like an L shaped sidewalk. So there's like a short, you know, walkway and then you would take like a right and there's a pretty long stretch of sidewalk to hit the door. Uh, and then on the left of that, the sidewalk, there's a, you know, the front yard, which extends all the way out to the end of the street, obviously. So, uh, another part of the story is I had Heelys on, so I wasn't really aware of my surroundings. I was trying to skate down the driveway instead of, you know, walking up, you know, around the car, I tried to skate down and walk back up around, which was kind of weird and awkward to do on the cement. So I ended up stepping in the grass. Cause also, you know, Heelys, if you ever wore them back in those days, uh, you know, they were really like loud when they hit the cement, clicking and clacking, clicking and clacking. So anyway, try not to keep this too long, but, um, yeah, so we're walking up the door. He's closer. My dad's closer to the door than I am. And I'm like, you know, in the grass, like I said, to the left of the sidewalk. And, you know, as soon as he touched the door, I was like, like, so if he's here, he's at the door, I'm probably, you know, two to three feet behind him and a foot left in the, in the yard. So anyway, we hear, these footsteps, like somebody running up and we both immediately turned around. And this is like, as soon as his hand touched the door. Now we had two doors, a screen door and you know, the actual door. So when his hand was on the screen door, the guy, you know, ran up like, do, 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 you know, like you're playing a first person shooter and you hear some footsteps in your headphones and you, you know, turn really quickly. It was like that. Uh, so I turn around and, uh, there was a guy, with a gun in my, like, you know, basically in my face, uh, it was pointed at my dad. But like I said, um, I was further away from the door than he was. So I was closer to the guy and thus the gun, which was pointed at him, uh, which would still be considered point blank range, like for him. But I was even closer than that and off to the side in the yard once again. So uh, basically we both turned around in a split second. My dad saw it and like instantly rushed the guy, punching him in the face and uh, it was at that point I realized that there was another guy behind him, like in the middle of the street who, you know, was probably who was there to like once he got us in the door or got the door open, he was going to help like take whatever, you know, stuff out and into the getaway car. But, you know, like I said, my dad rushed the guy, the gunman and uh, punched him, knocked him down, which, you know, bang, like all it all happened at the same time. Like he hit the guy, the gun went off. Uh, I'm just standing there like everything's kind of going in slow mo, but you know, it's all happening over the course of seconds though. So, uh, at this point, like my dad, like runs over the guy, like the guy's on the ground. He continues running straight towards the other guy who then takes off running. I didn't really see if he had a gun or not. Uh, he was kind of far back and there was like literally a gunman right here. So, uh, you know, he's like chasing the other guy basically, and then the gunman's like fumbling. You know how when you stumble and you're like scrambling to get on your feet, he's doing one of those numbers. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at him. He's kind of looking at me like, what the heck? <clears throat> and, you know, I'm just like, wow, that really just happened. And, um, yeah, he got up and ran. And, you know, the car, you know, you see the getaway car 
you know, skirt off or whatnot. And so then I'm just standing there like waiting for my dad to come back. But, you know, obviously he doesn't. So um, I like start walking or whatever down the driveway or down the like yard. And uh, for whatever reason, I turned the wrong way. Like obviously all the action went left and I turned right and there was no lights. Uh, Like for whatever reason, all the street lights like to the right were completely out. It was pitch black. We had street lights where we were. So I don't know like how I didn't see anything, but uh, as far as left, but for whatever reason, I went right and walked a long way. Um, and there were some people outside, some Hispanic guys who were asking me what just happened. And uh, I basically told them and they ended up knowing my dad and my uncle. And because uh, like I didn't have my uncle's phone number in my phone for whatever reason. Like I think I had got a new phone. Like, you know, how you used to switch your SIM cards out or whatever. I think I did one of those and I didn't have my numbers or whatever. So they ended up calling him. So then I walked back down. And that's when I seen like the neighbors across the street from us who were just like standing over like, you know, they were standing over something and obviously it was my dad or whatever. But I just kind of like walked up and I couldn't say anything. I didn't know like what this like, I, you know, there was nothing to say. I didn't. It was just like, damn. Uh, and then uh, obviously the, the police had been called or whatnot. And so they pull up later, a little bit later. And, uh, you know, the ambulance comes. Uh, I'm not sure if they arrived together or if one or if the ambulance maybe arrived a little bit later, but you know, you're not going to get an ambulance without police. So, uh, anyway, the, uh, there's like this Asian rookie cop who didn't really seem interested in being there, which I mean, granted, you know, late, it's a job, it's a new case that you probably don't want to work, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, he was just asking me to, you know, the same questions over and over again. And I, you know, kept answering them or whatever. And, uh, you know, but the whole time I'm looking over his shoulder at my dad on the ground in the ambulance, like, you know, the door is open. Nobody's really moving to, like, get him in there, though. He's just kind of on the ground. And then eventually they kind of go through his pockets, which uh, at that point, it looked like they were trying to, you know, start picking him up and loading him in or whatnot. Uh, he seemed to be breathing at the time or whatever. But uh, at that point, you know, once they were going through his pockets, they found like a couple eight balls of cocaine. And so they put those like on the ground and they stopped messing with them. They put them back like, you know, they kind of like stopped messing with them for a while. And then, like, I guess they wanted to, you know, see what the cops wanted to do about it or this, that and the third. And. Um, uh, yeah, so I can't really speak on a time frame because everything, you know, seems kind of warped as far as like. How long we were standing out there. uh all I know, it was like cold because we had left like early in the day. So all I had was like a basketball, like basketball shorts on and a white tee in my Heelys, like blue and white Heelys, white tee, blue shorts, you know, that kind of thing. So it was kind of cold. So we were just standing out there. I was like, you know, wanting to go inside and like change clothes. But, you know, I knew there was all kind of shit in the house that they <laughs> didn't need to, you know, be around. So long story short, uh, I ended up going to the police station they put me in the back of police car and took me to the police station for about 12 hours and asked me the same questions again and uh all that kind of stuff and uh, eventually dropped me off at my grandma's house for me to you know tell the same story again you know to everybody else that wanted to know and you know that kind of thing you know how that goes so uh you know that's pretty much it the after that, you know, shortly after that, I went back home and, uh, you know, went to basketball camp. After that, I, you know, had to go to a band camp because I was, you know, I forgot to mention that this was the uh, the year, my the year, the summer before my freshman year of high school. So uh, 
I had been playing percussion since like fourth grade, fifth grade or whatever. Um, So I was on the drum line. So I had to attend camp. So everything was just happening really fast. So it made it easy for me to kind of just like bottle everything and push it to the side and focus on, you know, the task at hand. And that just kind of snowballed, you know, over the years and uh, just led to, you know, kind of just being good at uh, hiding things or, you know, not reacting outwardly to things. Because, you know, my thing is if like I could keep a straight face or, you know, keep cool, calm and collected at, you know, the crime scene with my dad laying there and the police asking me, you know, what happened after all that. I didn't, you know, scream, cry, yell or nothing, you know, during any of that. So it's just like, you know, when people expect me to do that for trivial everyday issues, it just, you know, it just doesn't really mix well. So, um, anyway, guys, uh, now I want to jump into some of the questions. Some of the people uh, of Reddit had uh, some of the questions they wanted answered or some of the statements. And then, you know, I'll be able to respond and uh, hopefully shed some light on the situation. All right. So let's get into these questions. Now, um, a few people had quite a bit to say about uh, the gun situation um, because, you know, obviously I'm a lot more detailed in the post. Um so let me just read the questions to you. So Harry Toast 2 says, Colin bullshit. You were a 12 year old and you knew exactly what gun they used when it supposedly happened in a few seconds. You're telling me that a 12 year old figured out the make and model of a gun. Fair enough, Harry Toast. Uh, Mathematical Genius says, at the age of 12, how did you recognize the weapon as a Glock, specifically a 19, especially in the dark? Why was your father left on the ground after finding drugs on his person? How long ago did this happen? And what's your favorite kind of cheese? All right. So my response on the Reddit post was uh, if you grew up in China, you'd probably speak Mandarin. Uh, in America's darkest area, 12 year olds are killing with Glocks. It'd be more surprising to find a 12 year old there who couldn't simply identify one. Um, Let's see. And then also uh, Goatster's Paradise says at the age of 12, I was putting bullets inside of bullets at 500 meters. We all have different upbringings, especially in America. It's not uncommon for kids to know about guns. Um, and then uh, Kajika Audax says video games. And Lord J said at the age of 10, I knew what a Glock was from Counter-Strike 1.6. All right. So. Basically, uh, I agree to all those responses that uh, I agree with all those responses and I'm pretty much a a little bit of all of them. Um, So in the case of identifying the Glock, uh, for one, uh, growing up in the South, uh, I didn't have like a super close relationship with my grandpa, either one. But the one uh, here was a a Vietnam veteran or is a Vietnam veteran. Um, And he loves hunting, shooting, fishing and outdoors. So uh, from a very young age, even before he actually took me shooting, he was, uh, you know, showing me the weapons and teaching me how to like, you know, teaching me about them safely and teaching me like basic gun safety before we ever even thought about shooting. Um, And so, of course, he had Glocks and also uh, other firearms like, you know, 1911s and et cetera. And, um, you know, the Glock is probably the most popular pistol in the world. Um, but basically it it boils down to this. It comes, the Glock comes in three basic sizes. Okay. You have 
your baby Glock, which is like in nine millimeter, that's the Glock 26. Uh, you have your Glock 19 here, which is the one I saw and identified. And you have your Glock 17, which is a full size. So it was definite. I wasn't really saying for sure it was a 19. You know, you would have to check a ballistics report for that because, you know, the 40 cal, I think, is the 23. And then I think they have a 45. Those all come in, you know, the same size as well. Um, and obviously the firearm is empty. I would never bring it out of the gun safe room with any ammunition or anything like that unless it was a combat scenario. So, uh, you know, I don't feel like I need to do that on camera as well to make you feel safe at home. But uh, anyway, uh, so I played a lot of video games. Also, I played a lot of first person shooters. Uh, my favorite at the time I was actually playing, you know, all, that summer heavily Rainbow Six Vegas. Uh, what we would do is play terrorist hunt on LVU campus. Any of you guys that was outside when, you know, Rainbow Six came out, Rainbow Six Vegas, you know what I'm talking about. Like, so Rainbow Six Vegas, you get four friends or three friends and yourself and a four man squad and clear out, you know, this college campus full of terrorists, basically. And we would do like pistols only and stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time looking down the sights of a Glock, you know, just on a first person shooter level before I ever owned one or held one for myself. Maybe not before I held one myself, but before I owned one myself. On top of that, you know, you can down here, you can walk into any, you know, sporting goods store and see the whole Glock display. So, I mean, it's really not that far fetched. On top of that, like if I had like a 10 year old cousin who was interested in guns, I could safely show him how to, you know, handle and operate a firearm and identify it. So uh, hopefully that's the satisfactory answer. Um, but, you know, to sum it all up, Glocks are like one of the most unique looking pistols on the market simply for how square it is. That's very noticeable. And when there's like a gun in your face, you're going to notice, you know, a lot about it. Like if it wasn't as like, you know. An, such an iconic weapon it would be a lot harder i agree but um you know even if somebody you know came and stuck a beretta m9 in your face you're gonna know what that is from playing call of duty all of these years you know what i'm saying so it's like it's not as far-fetched as some of you guys are thinking even though i understand you guys have lived you know really like safe and sheltered lives and that's good for you i'm not wishing anything you know otherwise but sometimes you just got to think outside the box that's really what higher learning is for guys it's connecting people with people uh with different perspectives you know so um sushi and wow basically uh well he responded to a piece of the the he quoted a piece of the uh article and said uh, can you tell me more about or tell us more about the precognition what did it feel like was it detailed or vague and in what in what way was it strong so uh, precognition is basically what I was talking about earlier when I had the really strong feeling that something was going to happen. So it was kind of like or it was like thoughts that imagine thoughts in your head that you didn't produce. Like that sounds crazy, like schizophrenic, but it wasn't like, you know. It wasn't like, you know, I was talking to an invisible person or something like that. It was just like, uh, you know. Like, I remember, like, my dad walking by one day and then, like, a voice saying something about he's going to die or something in my head. And I thought I was, like, crazy or just needed some sleep or something like that. But, uh, you know, I had been staying up too late or playing too many video games. Like, all the stuff that they say, you know, I thought maybe that was true or something. But, you know, it was, like, the strongest gut feeling I had ever had about anything. And uh, I couldn't shake it. And, um, you know, it happened. So that really, you know, that was really a lot of... That was really a large part of 
uh, you know, why the recovery process is so, you know, difficult, I guess you can say, because, you know, what does that mean for, you know, for life? Uh, you know, in the next episode, we'll get into, you know, some of, you know, my beliefs and everything like that. But, um, you know, for now, let's just suffice to say it was kind of a supernatural experience in the sense that you couldn't call that normal or ordinary and um, it's not something I talk about a lot because, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, people will find hard to believe or, you know, just it just kind of seems a bit much. All right. But moving on. Um, dark memes for the lad wants to know, did you see your father as any less once you found out he was a dealer? Um, no, no. Um, and when you say like found out, there wasn't really any one moment where I just like found out it was just kind of like, you know observing things over the years and just confirming things I already knew to be true. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things. Like I said, he went to jail when I was younger. Uh, there was once when we were there for Christmas where he was shot, like, uh, but you know, this, you know, there was a story that, you know, it wasn't like meant for him. He was like in a club where they were shooting and was shot in the leg. So like, I don't know like that, like if that was the actual story or if something actually happened or whatever, but uh, you know, there was a lot of things that were like abnormal, I guess you could say that I kind of noticed and filed away. But uh, I think the reason why, like the adults and like the OGs, if you will, like like liked me hanging around is because I wasn't the kid that like asked any questions or, you know, repeated things that people said or like told, you know, things, you know, repeated things that like it was like, you know, what happens, you know, here stays here that, you know, I was that kind of kid. I just stayed in like soaked up a lot of stuff and, you know a lot of things that people would never know or you know i've seen a lot of things a lot of people wouldn't expect me to see uh just you know off the strength of being that type of person so uh i definitely didn't see my father as any less because uh, he was a very given person uh he was the kind of guy like you know when the ice cream truck would come up you know pass through the neighborhood you know every kid that was outside got ice cream you know uh the family members that you know pulled up and wanted to borrow 40 50 bucks but never pay it back for like bingo or you know whatever their vices were you know he was that person that they always went to because he was never really going to say no he was never going to be on your back about paying him back and uh you know sadly a lot of those same people were at the funeral uh you know acting like, you know, they were turning their nose up at it, like they didn't understand, you know, what was going on, you know, even though some of these people had been, you know, collecting money from him since he was, you know, 13, 14, 15. So, you know, how could you not know what was going on? But anyway, that's another discussion for another time, possibly another platform. All right. So Spats Gamer YT wants to know, did you ever consider your dad's business as a viable job? And were you guys living a big life or was he really small time? So, uh, no, I never considered drug dealing like as a viable option for me. Uh, but I did like the whole business aspect of, you know, having a product, selling it to consumers and, you know, making a profit off of it. Um, and not just your traditional, you know, come to work for this many hours and we're going to pay you this every year. And that's just kind of, you know, what you're, you know, forced to live on. And, you know, that, that just seemed more attractive to me, but in a legal capacity to where I could, you know, really do as much as possible and, you know, go all out. But um, as far as, you know, where we live in the big life, uh, no, you know, they found, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash in the house. But, you know, we weren't, you know, flashy people. He wasn't a flashy guy. Um, he wasn't the type to, you know, 
pull up in a new Beamer or, you know, all of that kind of crazy shit or like, you know, uh, but, you know, in the Bay Area, y'all don't know what I'm talking about when I say we did have a couple of scrapers. I'm not going to lie to you, but, you know, it is what it is. It's neither here nor there. Uh, but, you know, we lived a good life. You know, it was you know, we had a nice, normal house. Uh, we lo- like loved the outdoors and going on adventures and playing games and, you know, doing all kind of stuff. All right. So Kena Grace 96 says, R.I.P. Dad, you are sorely missed. Thank for uh, thank you for sharing your story. I just have a couple que- uh, questions. What did you and your dad like to do together for fun? And what are you doing now? And then also, uh, Sparta, uh, Sparta Slick 32 says, excuse me, pretty wild story. Sorry you have to deal with that trauma. It's interesting to me to read your several, several compliments of him. To us, he was a drug dealer. To you, he was dad. Keep healing, dude. So, but, so both of those questions are kind of, I wanted to pair them together because the answer to the first question is, it's pretty much, you know, what's interesting about the second question slash statement. So the thing that uh, Sparta Slick said here to us, he was a drug dealer to you. He was his dad. I think that speaks a lot to, you know, what the stereotypes of what, you know, a drug dealer is or what a drug dealer looks like or acts like, um, you know, in our society to those who, you know, don't know. Um, but basically, um You know, a lot of people, you know, that you might work with or that, you know, the guy doing your oil change or, you know, the guys working at your factory, your local factories, uh, you know, they might need a little something to take the edge off and somebody's going to provide it. Uh, You know, they might not look like or act like what you expect. They might not live where you expect all these kind of things. But uh, as far as, you know, being more than a dealer, you're absolutely right. Like I really didn't see him as a dealer because we did like so much other than that. Uh, you know, for me, a lot of things were positive. The fact that that's what he did in the, in the sense that we had, like when I was out there, we had like all the time to spend together. It wasn't like, you know, I would go out there for the summer and he still had to, you know, work eight hours a day with a two hour commute. So, you know, by the time he does get off, you know, there's really not a lot of time to, you know, do summer activities or whatnot. Uh, so that was a great thing. It gave us a lot of time to do a lot of things as far as what we did for fun. Um, you know, and first of all, he was a diehard Raider fan. Um, you know, I have my Bo Jackson Jersey that I wore to his funeral on right now. Um, he was actually buried in a Charles Woodson Jersey. Um, so Raiders, you know, Raiders, he loved the Raiders. And so obviously I was born in Raider gear and I've always loved the Raiders been a lifelong fan myself. Uh, but his favorite pastime by far was fishing, though. Uh, so he taught me how to fish at a young age. Uh, I loved, always loved fishing. Even before I ever went fishing, I loved, like, the idea. Like, I always wanted to go fishing, like, as a small kid. Like, I would watch the outdoor channel and, you know, I always wanted to do that. So we fished a lot, like, maybe two, three times a week minimum uh, when we were out there. Uh, we had a boat. Uh, we went on charter boats. Uh, one of my best memories, probably like one of the best memories of my life is fishing under the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, winning the pot for catching the largest salmon uh, because we were very competitive. We like we love to compete in everything. Um, so not only did I catch a bigger fish than him, 
I caught the biggest fish on the boat. So that was bragging rights for life. Like I didn't care. Um, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. And then to top it off, you know, obviously we took it home and filleted and grilled it. And I mean, that was the best. That was the best salmon I'll ever have. Like, I don't think salmon can ever taste that good, no matter the circumstances, just because of like. Just the adventure to get it. Uh, you know, we also went camping, you know. Uh, once we went camping, you know, we, when we went camping, we always went camping by the ocean so we could just fish, you know, and, and we, we love to do the whole, you know, only, you know, you only eat what you catch. If you don't catch anything, you don't eat, but you know, the fish would, you know, were biting so crazy out there that we, you know, had a little taster of every species. Uh, we also love playing video games. Like I said earlier, if you were out, if you were around when, uh, the original Halo came out, you already know how, how great of a party game that was, but imagine, you know, like 10, you know, hustlers or whatever in a room, like, uh, let's see. Yeah. In a room, right. Four on four. And then two kids, me and my best friend, Tim, which was like my brother, basically, and and the two kids are whooping everybody though like the two kids destroying everybody and talking trash and like you would just have to be there to understand how like special of a moment that was because uh uh man it's just it, those are just good times guys and you know obviously that's in the past but uh You know, you still just remember how much fun you used to have back in those days. Um, you know, we, we used to play Madden in 2K as well. But Halo, the original Halo, it, nothing will ever replace that. Like those type, those tournaments, like, man. Um, and just, you know, other random stuff we used to compete in. Uh, my dad played darts. He was in a dart league. Uh, like I said, we were really in the bowling. We had actually like just bought bowling balls and stuff, trying to get really into bowling uh, right before he passed away. Like I said, we were, at, we were coming from the bowling alley when that happened. Uh, you know, we would like to set up, you know, we do barbecues or whatever and set up uh, badminton nets, play volleyball or whatever, handball, basketball. Uh, we had a ping pong table in the backyard. We used to, you know, like we loved competing, just, you know, challenging, challenging each other at stuff, trying me trying to beat him. And then, uh you know, me, me discovering new things to challenge him to like, you know, like I would be like, uh, you know, I'd find a new game and low key get good at it on the side, then, you know, introduce him to it and beat him at it. And of course he had to like get good until he could like beat me or whatever. But, uh, you know, also swimming and diving, uh, there was this really deep pool, like, uh, 20, it was a uh, 13 feet to 20 feet. And, uh, we would like throw quarters in there and dive see who could get it first uh and uh just stuff like that man uh batting cages go-karts mini uh mini golf we had a lot of fun we just we did a whole bunch of stuff it was like it was almost like uh you know uh he and my uncles and stuff they were like joining in and like reliving their childhood with us like the childhood they they should have had while they were like hustling and stuff like that while they had to hustle and do all of that they were like giving us that childhood but like also like enjoying it with us so that's like the best way i could describe it but um you know every day was was something fun like regardless it you know it wasn't always just spending money or whatever it was sometimes it was you know just barbecuing in the backyard and balling up foil and make inventing our own little handball of you know, baseball game, stuff like that, you know?
All right, let's see. Next question. I kind of went a long time on that one. Sorry about that. All right, so Pag Nasty wanted to know, did you know your dad was a drug dealer? If yes, then how? So I kind of answered that one earlier, um, but I'll just put it like this. Um, I kind of always knew that, but I just confirmed it with my own two eyes and just kind of kept it to myself. I never asked him or uh, something like that. It was just kind of it kind of just got to a point where I knew and then to the point where he knew I knew and I knew he knew I knew. If that makes sense. So it was just kind of like, you know, what's understood doesn't need to be said or, you know, that kind of stuff. All right. So, uh, Bridget, uh, Bridget T wants to know, or she says your description is so detailed. Why do you think the details have stuck with you so clearly over the years? Have you had therapy? Did you struggle with PCSD? So the short answer to that question, to both of those questions is yes. Um, so I immediately went into therapy and, you know, uh, my therapist or whatever was telling me about PTSD and basically like, you know, you experience something traumatic. So expect PTSD, like expect the PTSD. These are some of the common symptoms or whatever. But I think I was kind of looking at it like a test or an evaluation. And, you know, when you know, when you're in the school system, you're trained to like pass tests, like not necessarily, you know, You know, you're you're trained to pass the test, not necessarily put your feelings into it or whatever. So I think I was looking at it like kind of like a test that I needed to pass. So I went in there real upbeat and I was making the lady laugh and we were holding like conversations that had nothing to do with, you know, anything as far as me or whatever I was thinking. And, um, you know, because at that time, like I said, I don't even think I had begin to process everything. It was just I had so much going on. And it was just kind of like, you know, every, you know, you know, obviously the people that care about you want to know you're OK or whatever. So but the thing is, it's up to you to to tell them if you're OK or not. So it's just like, yeah, I'm fine or whatever. Then that's that, you know, like, are you sure? It's only so many times they can ask you, like, are you sure without, you know, before they believe you like, all right, I mean, I guess you're cool or whatever. Um, so as far as struggling with PTSD, I mean, of course, I mean. That's something that uh, I don't want to say I think I'll probably always struggle with, but I just feel like there are certain things that changed about me that will never change back or whatever. And um, yeah, so sticking with therapy real quick before I jump into the PTSD side, um, I recently uh, before writing the, the article on Reddit, I recently had another go at therapy out did about four or five sessions i believe um with a new therapist or whatever and um because i hadn't been for like a very long time at that point so i thought i'd try it again and being at a more advanced state and understanding like how i approached the first time and how i was going to approach this time differently and and i don't know i kind of felt like i overwhelmed my therapist a little bit with as far as like um, because I understand you're supposed to like build up a relationship, but I kind of wanted to get into, uh, because the way I look at therapy is like, you're going there for like a neutral source to ask you questions as far, you know, questions that jog your own brain, because really it's not about what they're going to say to you about you. It's about what you say. Like they'll ask you a question about yourself and you'll answer and you'll get something that you really didn't you know conscious you weren't consciously aware of and so that's what therapy is it's to pull stuff out of you in my opinion 
So I was looking for that. So basically my first couple sessions, I was really just trying to get him caught up. So, uh, you know, it was at least the first two sessions we were like, you know, we had gone over time just, you know, going back and forward, having a conversation, chopping it up or whatever. But um, at the end of the day, I feel like it kind of, you know, after about four or five sessions, I didn't feel like it was going in the direction I necessarily needed it to go as far as um, helping me achieve my higher self which is what it's all about or whatever so um, i tried something else actually got a christmas present from my mom that was like a spiritual counseling or something like that which obviously you know i was kind of skeptical of but you know she swore by it and you know she like i said she had already gotten it for me so i was open-minded and tried it and it was actually really crazy and amazing um without giving any information about myself he just knew a lot of things uh, and it wasn't like, oh, you're going to you're going to meet somebody here or on, you know, your sign is this or, you know, like some Miss Cleo type stuff. It wasn't like that. It was just more like he was coming in like, uh, OK, well, I feel like you've been having trouble with your digestive system. And that's absolutely true. And he was trying to tell me, like, well, your body doesn't process beef. Well. And I mean, honestly, you know, it, the, the skeptics out there are going to say, well, that's an easy one. Everybody knows, like, the human body doesn't process beef well. So, you know, da, 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 da. Like, and, but that was just the first thing without me even saying nothing. Then he was talking about, like, like it, like your spine's out of line, which is true. I've been needing to go to the chiropractor again for a while. I wonder if I could get like a crack on on the mic. Oh, yeah. oh, that was a good one. But yeah. So yeah, he, all of that. Uh, but it's a lot of things. I actually have the footage. I could, you know, one of these podcast episodes, I might bring that out. Or that might be something for the Patreon premium, you know, content subscribers. But uh, yeah, guys, I felt like that was more helpful uh that session was a lot more helpful than any other like formal counseling that i received not that there's anything wrong with it but it was just straight to the point like i felt like he already knew me or my spirit or you know just because he knew a lot of things it was like i didn't give any information about myself and he just knew a lot of things and some of the things that he said uh i didn't know like you know they were in the future and I don't know. It's weird, guys. I'll get more into it in a later episode. But um, that's, you know, my therapy experience thus far. But I'm moving to I'm moving to podcasting because I look at that as kind of like therapy, just getting this kind of stuff off my chest, expressing my thoughts and feelings uh, about certain things with uh, people like I did on Reddit, you know, helped me connect with people who share similar experiences. So. I feel like this is a good form of therapy in and of itself. And, you know, it can bring bring in and connect me with other people who also struggle with these things. Um, So jumping into the PTSD side of things, first thing I want to say is that uh, PTSD is something like it's a term that's thrown around a lot. So I really don't like to talk about it because nowadays it's kind of become trendy or whatever. And so I kind of feel like, you know, it's kind of almost habit to where when you hear somebody mention it, you kind of get that vibe. But you kind of look at it like, oh, are you just, you know, is it just one? You know, you're just using these trigger words. Um, You know, I, I seen recently somebody on Twitter claiming they had PTSD from, you know, tweets 
or something. And so they, that's why they tweeted something out that had nothing to do with anything. But uh, that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, but I think when the PTSD for me, uh, it, it showed itself in, or it shows itself in <clears throat> ways uh, my like like symptoms for me would be like the biggest one for me would be isolation because, uh, you know, I'm an only child on my mom's side anyway. So I always grew up only child. Uh, so and I really loved my alone time. It was to the point where like friends would come over and I'd be ready for them to leave just so I could enjoy, you know, my time alone <laughs> again. And so um, that like went times 10 after everything happened um, and just feeling like a overall general lack of connection um, with people like, you know, if you look, if you talk to veterans who, you know, go to war and come back, they don't really connect with people the same way because people don't know what they've been through. So it's like the people that knew them before knew a different person and they don't really know this person, but they're expecting the old person. So you, you know, you, the veteran or whatever, try to give them that as much as you can, but you can't. So it leads to like a disconnect because, you're not able to provide that person. And it's like, you just want to, you know, figure out all the things you have going on versus trying to put on a face to fit back into society. Um, that probably didn't make a lot of sense, but hopefully it did to somebody. Uh, but yeah, I just, I don't, I, and also I don't, I don't feel like I even look at connections with people the same, like people you're going to meet. Like, I don't really look at people as people, you know, all like, I don't really look at people as people that are going to be like permanent fixtures in my life or whatever. I don't, you know, that aren't already permanent fixtures in my life. You know, um, I try to like foreshadow a lot. I try to look ahead a lot. I try to look at the bigger picture a lot. It's, you know, when, when dealing with people, uh, I try to pay more attention to red flags, things like gut feelings for, you know, for sure. Gut feelings I pay attention to. Um, I don't really try to doubt them anymore after, after all of that. Um, I can't really think of too many times I had like a strong gut feeling about something and have been wrong. So, uh, yeah. Um, like I talked about earlier, uh, like that switch was flipped, you know, and that's what kept me calm or whatever. But the thing is, it's not like a switch that I can flip on and off at will. So a lot of times I come off as like not caring or not, you know, or angry or mad, not angry or mad, but like, I don't know, just people like don't really know how I'm feeling. Like they might ask me like, oh, are you mad? And I might be happy or what's wrong with you and nothing's wrong. But so I just kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of like I'm stuck in that. Uh, it's like normal people measure their emotions on a scale of one to 10. But I like, you know, once you experience an event that takes your emotions to like a million, it just kind of like breaks the scale and things don't even really register like that. And so that, you know, that becomes difficult when you try to get into a relationship because, you know, women want you to be, you know, super sensitive, which, you know, I understand, but it gets to a point where they're overly sensitive about things that don't really matter as much to you because, you know, your perspective well my perspective on life is different than somebody who you know maybe hasn't experienced 
as bad of days as I have or some other people have. Uh, and, you know, another thing about the PTSD is I've, you know, I felt really sad for others because I noticed how, you know, huge of an impact, you know, this 10 seconds had on my life. What about, you know, combat veterans who live in this environment for months at a time or years at a time? Um, you know, what about the kids you know, for example, in like Syria, the kids who are just kids growing up, they didn't choose where they were born or who they were born to. But, you know, all of a sudden a, a mortar comes through their house and now they're homeless and half their family's dead and they don't really even know why. Uh, well, you know, just stuff like that. Like, how do you go on living normally after that? Like, um, you know, say, say, you know, a victim of that type of situation I just named comes, you know, to another country or goes to another country where they're where they're safe. But how do they blend back into society? You know, you look at in America, the inner cities, you know, all over that they don't really want to talk about unless it's, you know, campaigning for something. Uh, but, you know, you look at these inner cities where kids are, you know, killing each other or whatever. Nobody wants to talk about the PTSD. All of them must be going through on a daily basis because, you know, they're killing and then, you know, they're killing in revenge for the friend that they saw killed next to them. And then they're going and killing and scarring other people who are going to come back and kill. And it's just a blood feud like the Hatfields and McCoys that's just never ending. But it's in every hood in America that th that this is happening. And. You know, the people that have nothing to do with that, they would love to boil it all down to, you know, people are just savages, you know. And. um You know, it really just boils down to a sickness, though. And I mean, we can get into that a little bit later. But, you know, we're talking about PTSD and its causes. Um, I've seen a lot of like good people feel like they have to be this hard, tough, you know, violent, murderous individual just to survive. And they still don't survive. They die. But, you know, they take a lot of people to the grave with them. So, uh, you know, like my best friend who I was saying was my partner in the Halo tournaments. Um, he also passed away. He was killed also. Um, also living that same life. So it's just like. At a certain point. You don't want like you don't ever want to hear that. You don't ever want to be there like you don't ever want to see that. You don't ever want to get that kind of call. You don't ever want to go to that funeral. You don't ever want to like stand on that gravesite. But at the end of the day, what we all have to realize is, you know, if you're in the streets or if your family's in the streets, like this is the likely outcome. Like this isn't the shocking part of the streets. Like, you know, I remember my dad or, you know, I remember like my uncles and, you know, stuff like that telling stories where, you know, they were surprised to make it to 18 or whatever. And as sad as that is, it's the reality for a lot of people. So when things like this happen, it's not really abnormal. In the grand scheme of things. Um, so. That's just basically I look at it like that, like I feel 
a deep disturbance for others who have to be going through much worse than I could ever imagine experiencing and not being able to, you know, move and, and, and place themselves and live in a healthy environment like I did to kind of process things and try to flourish despite, you know, they're still in, in the environment. Like you can forget about healing from, you know, one friend being killed. You're, you know, you're, you got another friend being killed the next day and you're, you know, you're on the chopping block too. So you're looking over your shoulder. You also have the law on you. Like, I can't understand like what that must do to somebody mentally. Um, you know, especially considering what 10 seconds did to my whole situation. Um, you know, it's a lot of innocent bystanders scarred by the streets, man. And, um, you know, I'm just one of them to be honest with you. But like I said, all, you know, all my friends are dead. Like Lil Uzi, you know, said in XO tour life and it's sad. And, and I mean, all my friends are out there, you know, from that area, because they all got involved in the streets, man. And uh, I think if, uh, you know, I just think if they had the support and the resources to, you know, do something else. And, and the key word there is the support, because, you know, it's easy to say you can do something else, you know, put the gun down and pick up a book like that's easy to say, but it's the support. It's the, it's the, it's the, somebody has to make them believe that that's going to lead them to success because what they see is what they see as success is the person that's able to put food on a table and clothes on their backs and, you know, have the nice things that they want. And so if they're achieving that through the streets, then they don't really give the book much of a second thought. So you have to show them how they can be successful. Like, you know, you have to give them an example, like the street guys are giving them an example, like, Hey, this is, you know, they show them the, the, the money and, you know, the things they want. And that's what entices them to even pick up, you know, a quarter brick in the first place. Uh, so what are you, you know, so it's like before you tell somebody to put that down and pick up something else, I feel like if it's actually ever going to work, you have to have like something else for them to pick up. Um, but yeah, guys, uh, on that note, I want to get into another topic, uh, dealing with PTSD and that is self-medication. As I self-medicate, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick smoke break here, guys. Mellow out. We've been having some pretty heavy conversations. Discussing some pretty heavy things. Cheers. So, as you know, guys, more and more states are starting to legalize cannabis for medical and recreational uh, use. 
uh even my state just uh recently legalized cbd so we're on our way so we're not all the way there yet but we did you know we do have cbd dispensaries now i haven't tried any yet um you know maybe that's another thing we'll do here on the pod give you a little you know give you the lowdown on that um that'll help me stop smoking cigarettes as well i believe uh so i'll see what the prices are looking like uh and if that'll be a smooth transition or what but uh for me self-medication started at about 16. uh like i said i you know i tried a lot of other well i never tried any other drugs or anything but for me before i ever like tried any like smoked weed or anything like that uh i was into like activity so i like that was kind of like my high like discovering a new activity and then getting good at it and then you know once the spark kind of wore off find something else and you know just trying different things just to see you know trying to find that thing that i really love or whatever and also just you know just that feeling of accomplishing you know something or learning something that you know you couldn't do at one point you know i it just gives you kind of like a natural high in my opinion um you know just improvement i guess you could say uh but at like i think about 16 or yeah about 16 is when i first smoked but it wasn't until i got to uh college uh probably about 2011 2012 so either yeah but i mean that's either 17 or like 18 or something like that um that uh you know that's when i had like i guess you could say i bet my first like plug <laughs> like like connect like my first like big con- not big connect but you know the connect that had like some real like strong in and like uh we were classmates uh in culinary school we were in the same group so i got like the group discount like so i was getting like the strong for the great price um and so like i had never smoked anything that crazy strong i think uh that was yeah it was some train wreck and he also had he like he had another strain that uh ah man i can't think of the other strain right now off the top i kind of want to say ak-47 but it wasn't ak-47 it was train wrecking something else uh he had two different strains uh i want to say he had like more of a sativa also all right that's now that he there because you know train wreck you know whoo man anyway oh wait hold on no yeah that was my skywalker og guy like if i get my boy damo in here to talk about that yeah so he had train train wrecking skywalker og uh uh not at the same time i think i tried the train wreck first but the skywalker og was like some of the best butt i ever had uh to this day uh but anyway that was like my first real smoking experience like uh it, you know i went over their dorm room because uh two of the guys that were in my group were like roommates or whatever so i went over there and hung out with them uh after because we had just like passed our midterm with flying colors a group midterm or whatever so we went over there and had kind of like a chill party rolled up a bunch of like bunch of bud and uh we're just chilling on the couch watching uh talladega nights and all kind of funny movies and that was the first time i really like i really really got like super super stoned like to the point where like you know you start you know that first like time you get super super stoned and you start like you know that voice your your thoughts in your head are like super loud and you know like like this like the movies type stone that kind of and so from there i just felt like totally at ease at peace i was like really like genuinely laughing from the heart 
um, you know, I just felt like a weight lifted off my shoulder, kind of, and uh, I just couldn't stop laughing. It was uncontrollable. Like, uh, I was, I was that guy. I'm not gonna lie. It's kind of embarrassing, but like, I could not stop laughing at Talladega Nights. Like that movie. Like it'll, it like I can't stop laughing. Like sober. But that time was in the embar like it was embarrassing how how much I was laughing. But <clears throat> either way, it was from that moment that I knew that like I had kind of found something that was gonna be around for the like you know for the rest of my life probably because uh, you know ever since that moment I hadn't felt that like at ease and free. So anyway, I took a lot like a lot. Like I bought like quite a bit off of him and took it home with me. And, you know, once I got by myself and like smoked again, like by myself and just really got, you know, alone with my thoughts or whatever. That's when it really I really started to see like the medical benefit, especially like as far as mental health goes, because there was certain thoughts that I was suppressing that I, you know, couldn't run away from off that train wreck, you know. And it just forced me to sit there and face those thoughts and kind of meditate on them and, you know, really understand how I felt about a lot of things. So in a lot of ways, it was like therapy. So, you know, with the with the train wreck was my therapist to the point where it was just showing me these these thoughts and these images or whatever. Not necessarily images, but just, you know, well, I guess, yeah, you could say images, or you know, memories or whatnot. And uh you know, as I as I kept going on that like journey of self exploration, I just you know started being more and more honest with myself, and you know eventually it got to the point where uh, over the course of the years it got to the point where uh, I just felt like I needed to like tear down almost everything I had built on like the fake exterior of everything being cool and all it like you know as far as everything being fine with me uh you know because you you put on the outward face to be fine for everybody else but you know it came to the point where I felt like I needed to tear down everything I had built on top of that and start fresh and really be okay and then build up again from there so that's why I kind of uh like just kind of went dolo like lone wolf again you know and just for years, really, honestly, to this point, and just been kind of doing my own thing, you know, getting to know me um, and just healing, like, you know, like I said. And uh, I thank cannabis a lot for that, because had it not been for cannabis, I probably would have my head wrapped up in something else, you know, uh, because I was super into just like working super hard, like, you know, put your head down and, you know, after 40 50 years you'll retire and then you know but you look up now and you know the baby boomers can't even get their retirement so you know i'm like you're gonna have to make your own retirement and you know at this rate working for salary is like okay you know even if they give you a hundred thousand a year and you have to be there 70 80 hours a week you know is it really is that really maximizing you know it, you know your time over over the course of your life and you know i just i just attribute cannabis helping me think all of those things because these are a lot of things there's a lot of things that people don't want to think on a daily basis because if they thought those things then they'll start feeling those things and feeling those things to be true and being really generally just unhappy with life and where it is at that moment uh but 
you know, also you have to look at, you know, really doing the real work to get better yourself, you know, because it's not like you can just smoke and everything's going to be okay. For me, I look at it as a way to really just face the thoughts that I have in the back of my subconscious and my mind and really try to explore why I feel the way I feel about certain things and why I, you know, act uh, the way I act or something like, you know, just find the reason why. Um, Because I find that there's generally a deeper meaning behind a lot of the things we do and say. So, again, that was a very long answer to a question, um, and I really don't feel like I touched on everything. Um, Especially as, you know, we could sit here and have a whole podcast on PTSD. I'm sure that conversation will come up again. Um, But, yeah, let's go ahead and have our final smoke break of the evening. guys so um there was also uh in the reddit comments under the post there was also a pretty big gun control debate um and at this point we're already about an hour in so i don't think i'm going to get into gun control this episode uh definitely in the future we will have that discussion um one thing i will say though is that uh you know the thing about laws is Number one, only law-abiding citizens follow laws, obey laws, and um, on top of that, when you talk about law enforcement, that's really only after the fact, like, so, meaning that that's after the law is broken, nine, like 9.9 times out of 10, so... Like the law's not really protecting as many people as you would want to think. I mean, sure, some people, there's people that don't do things because they're illegal, but, um, you know, that's basically a law abiding citizen. I mean, they're probably closer to the line of criminal than, you know, the goody two shoes angel type person. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is there's people out there that don't care about going to prison for life, don't care about dying um so there's not really any punishment you're gonna threaten them with that's gonna deter them from doing what they want to do um so we can put as many laws as we want to put on anything this doesn't just apply to gun control um but there's always going to be a black market so what you're doing by just putting you know all you're doing by 
enforcing strict gun control laws over every state is creating a situation like you know chicago where uh you know they do have concealed they do have a concealed carry permit program as far as i'm aware of but it's uh apparently very hard well i don't know how i can't say how hard it is to get into it's not as easy as it is down south but the point is it's always going to be easy to buy a gun off the black market um no i understand that a lot of guns on the black market are stolen from homes so if you take the guns away from the like legal gun owners then they don't have anybody to steal them from but you know guns still you know come in on trains and trucks and you know there's still people getting crates of guns you know that you know not all the guns are being stolen from outside the houses very few of them are being like they're not going to the gun store and purchasing them over the counter you know like the same way cocaine's not sold at walmart like <laughs> you know and it's on every block well maybe not every block but it's it's you know it's not hard to find um that should just tell you everything you need to know. Uh, we've had multiple prohibitions fail in this country already. So, um, like, we got to try to take different approaches. We have to try to attack the problem. Like, if you want to, that's just my opinion. Like, and, and, like, you can't, like, you can't make the guns disappear. And I said I wasn't getting into gun control. So I'm, I'm cutting this, this off short. But, um, you know, I think we have to stop talking about, like, impossible solutions. Like, uh, the debate uh between you know about the nuclear weapons like the people for nuclear weapons they argue that they're necessary for a nuclear deterrent and then the people that argue against nuclear weapons say you know no weapon like this should ever exist like just from a human perspective and it's like while you can see where they're coming from you have to acknowledge that these weapons do exist there's no way to you know uninvent them so they will exist and basically as long as that's true, I would rather live in the country that has them. Uh, you know, that's just me. Um, just like I would like an opportunity as a law abiding citizen to own a firearm to, you know, if somebody comes in my house with one, I'd like the opportunity to kill them before they kill me. Um, and hopefully after hearing my story, you can understand why I feel that way. But uh, I hope to never be in that situation. But um, that's just the reality. I don't see any amount of gun laws preventing criminals from like if, if a criminal wants to shoot somebody, they're going to get a gun one way or the other. Um, it might become harder to do that, I guess you could say, if you, you know, but it's not going to stop. Even if you delete guns from the history, then, you know. Your big brawly dudes are going to, you know, start winning again and beating people to death and melee weaponing people to death. You know, you're going to start seeing a return of the samurai and shit like that. So anyway, guys, like I said, like y'all didn't got me started in here. I said I wasn't going into gun control. Uh, we'll save that for another episode. But uh, really, I, I want to thank you all for tuning into this first episode, man. Um, I know I was kind of all over the place in areas. Um, this story, like I said, uh, uh, <clears throat> I haven't really told it a bunch, um, but I just wanted to start this platform off this way because 
maybe that's how I should, you know, should have been starting off, you know, all relationships and friendships like with that as the lead that way everything else is in focus as to why I am the way I am. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what I want for this platform, though, is I want this to be like a discussion. I don't want it to feel like I'm just talking at people, um, you know, which is why I wanted to open up with my personal story or whatever um, to encourage other people to, you know, maybe feel, you know, inspired to go ahead and share that with us, like share their stories or their thoughts. And, you know, maybe if, if you have some questions drop those down in you know the comments on youtube or like i said by the time you hear this there will be a subreddit for the podcast um you know on twitter i'm at afro dabmarai of course all links will be in the description and everything like that but um yeah man let's get connected let's start a platform let's uh help each other you know help <laughs> help each other yeah help each other help ourselves i guess i was gonna say that um but yeah man 2020 Let's make this our best year yet, man. Captain Smoke, I appreciate y'all watching Higher Learning. See you next Tuesday at 420.